0: Amen. Good evening. How is everybody doing tonight? Good deal. I like to hear that. Okay. I will I'll tell you how old I am. It used to be years ago, in previous millennia, churches had these things called hymnals. In the back, it's true, songs printed in books. In the back of those books, they had indexes. And some of them were the index of titles, but sometimes it was titles and first words. So like if you knew a song about how it started, not by its name that was in there. And to tell you what a reprobate child I was, in long about nine or ten it's nobody's figured out, and this is back when you had church. You had Sunday school, the Sunday morning discipleship training, Sunday night preaching. Then you had Monday night visitation. Then you had Wednesday night. We call it RAs or GAs, missions things. And then you had prayer. You had prayer meeting for adults, but you also had preaching on Wednesday night. So, and sometimes it got long, Lee. I mean, like long. And you were weary, and you were sitting on the third row of the back. It's some kid who was trying to learn how to preach and so he'd been given the opportunity to preach on Wednesday night but he really didn't have any clue what he was saying and it was just droning on and on. And in those rare occasions and moments we would, as little 7, 8, 9, 10 year old boys who just learned to read, we thought it was fun to open up the back of our hymnal and point to the title of a song. And the game was you had to find another title that made sense of what, we tried to make sentences and see how long we could talk by just pointing at different titles in the back of the hymnal. And I discovered something. You can make a hymnal say just about anything if you look long enough. Okay? Some people do that with Scripture. Have you heard people say, well, you can make the Bible say anything. you heard that? You hear the bad jokes about the guy that was wondering whether he ought to get married, so he looked over in Corinthians and it said, it's better that you should marry. And he thought, Oh, It's better that we marry. They looked over in the Gospels, whenever Judas was coming for Christ, it said, what thou must do, doest now, do us fast. And he said, see, that's our word. Well, now we know if you looked at the context of either one of those verses, they have nothing to do with whether or not a young man should propose. Even in Corinthians, when it said it is better to marry, in full context, Paul was saying it's better not to marry, but if You want to, you're not going to sin, and if it's better, it's better to marry than to burn. I mean, that long context. I share that to say this. We talk about interpreting Scripture, and like, how do you dig on your own? One of the greatest problems that people fall into is reading along until they find a phrase or even a verse that sort of says what they want to say anyway, and they use that It's kind of like what the Bible says, and they'll fill in. I mean, if you go Genesis to Revelation, and you're willing to stop at any small point, you really can make the Bible say a lot of things that it's not saying. That is a very legitimate gripe that people give. But I want to give you the cure to that. If you make sure that at a minimum, you are using a verse... And getting the meaning for that verse from the context of its passage and not just from the immediate how far do I have to shrink it down to get it to say what I want it to say. You'll take care of 98% of that kind of misapplication. And if you'll go as far as to make sure it's in the context of its... We're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks what's called a discourse which would be the longer sections of, of books. If You make sure it's in that... I guarantee you, you cannot make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. It must say what it meant to the original hearers. Do you remember how we started this? What what did the Bible mean in their town? What is the river that divides us culturally, language and all those things? Time. What's the principalizing bridge? And then what does it mean in our town? When we look at at what is God saying in their town? What, is, what was God saying originally? What did this mean? The smallest unit. We talked last week about how to look at sentences and how to get down into details and, I mean, dig. Look at the grain of the wood and examine it. We need to do that. But if I were to get so myopic that I was just looking at the grain of the wood, I could say, man, I really think that this at one time I think it was a piece of plywood. I'm not positive, but I mean, I despite the feel and the touch. But I would have no idea what it was, would I? I, I mean, I could tell that it was wood. I could tell that it had been varnished a little bit. But I've got to at least step back far enough to see the whole picture to say, this is a lectern or a pulpit. I can't do that until I take at least one step back and get context. Tonight, we're going to talk about how to study. And I personally, I, we'll talk about word studies down the road, but, but even like breaking down a verse or, or a couple of verses, I do that. And there are some summary verses in Scripture that I think are extremely good to break. Acts 1 8 is a good example of a, a summary verse or a declarative verse that'll tell you really the outline of the whole book of Acts. You can look at the, the Great Commission and say, oh, that's a great one. You can look at John 20 when it says, and this, these words are written that you might believe. Believing you might have eternal life. Okay, those are summary verses. Break them down that way. Incredibly important. I don't know if we've talked yet, but I'll, I'll talk at some point about verses for life or anchor verses, and I think those are incredibly important. But if you want to say, I've studied the Bible or I've studied my passage or thus saith the Lord, the minimum section or size or unit of Scripture that you need to study to say, I know what God's saying here, is what's called the pericope, which is kind of the fancy theological term for a passage or a chapter. Now, I want to remind you that chapters and verses were put in much, much later. They are not inspired. They are not definitive or authoritative. They are incredibly useful, and I'm very grateful for them. But, but we need to learn to look at the flow of a book or the flow of a letter or a psalm, and say, what is, the, what is this unit? And that unit, what, whether you call it a passage of Scripture, or you call it a paragraph of Scripture, or you call it a pericope and use the, the scholastic term, it means the smallest section that gives you the thought, the meaning of the writer to the original hearers. We're going to talk about how to look at those kind of things today. The reason is, that is where you begin to truly... Feed yourself. If if you talk about breaking down a verse, a verse is like somebody having a. Uh, what is your what is your what's your favorite hamburger in Fort Smith that you didn't make yourself? George's okay. Del Corbin McDonald's. You are so huh? Patrick's. Patrick's is really good. Anybody else have a favorite to call out, man? Nobody's calling out Ed Walker. I'm telling you, man, you give me an Ed Walker hubcap burger, I can eat that. That's lunch for a week. Okay, breaking down a verse is like being able to reach over and your significant other has eaten most of their hamburger, but they have not going to eat the end of it, and you get to reach over and you grab that last good bite. I love that with Susie because Susie always orders more than she really wants or needs or can eat. She always thinks she can eat more than she can. So I always know I get a bonus. You can tell I've gotten a lot of bonuses across the last 33 years of marriage because I always get to get a little bit off at of the end of her plate. That's kind of what last week was about, was how to, how to enjoy the most of the morsel. Tonight we're going to talk about how do you make your own burger? How do you make your own? How do you, how do you feed yourself? Okay, that's all preliminary to say, look, look, look. Observe, observe, observe. See what's there. How do we look at passages? Everything we said last week still applies about list, about repetition, all of that. All that still things to look and observe for. We're going to add a few things tonight. The passage, look, not always, but often in Scripture, the writer will start with the general statement of truth and then, and then a little later in that same pericope or passage, they will go into specifics of the general thought. Example, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That is a general statement. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep yourself spiritual spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. That's verses 9 to 13 of that same chapter. General, really specific. What is the overview summary what is the general statement when you look at the passage ask yourself the question what is the verse or what are the what's the sentence what's the part that kind of summarizes the whole and then what are the details what are the specifics that support that statement this is especially true in the epistles and in sections of the law in the old testament you'll go from general to specific really fascinating Exodus chapter 20, that's what? That's the Ten Commandments, right? Do y'all know what follows that immediately? Another 73 more specific commands that relate to those ten. Like specifically, what does it mean not to steal? You will not steal the spotted cow from your neighbor because it looks cool. You will. I mean, they'll, they'll get very specific about what stealing is. Look for questions and answers. Questions that are asked, answers that are given. Mark 2.7 the Pharisees whenever they've lowered the man to Jesus say he said your sins are forgiven and they ask the question or he knows they ask the question who can forgive sins but God? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins so that he said to the man I tell you get up take your mat and go home. Mark 2.10 The Pharisees ask a question, really is an accusation, and Jesus gave the answer that was obvious. That tells us why Jesus healed the man that the four brought and lowered down. He did it so people would know he was the Son of God. When you see questions, English translations are wonderful because you know it's a question because it has this little question mark behind it, punctuation. I'm so glad it's in English. In the originals, there is no punctuation. That's why I like the Greek, the, the, the gathered text, because they put English punctuation with Greek sentences, and it makes it much easier for guys like me to understand. But ask, is the question rhetorical? What's a rhetorical question? Yeah, a question that, that was never meant to be answered. If I say something like, and don't you all agree? I may, it may be rhetorical. I may be assuming you all agree, and I'm just making a statement with the question. Who asked the question? Who asked the question in, our, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark illustration we just had? Who was asking that question? You listened really, really close. I told you. It was the Pharisees. The, the ones that were, were against Jesus are the ones that asked the question. You'll find in the Gospels that's often, that's true probably a third or more of the time, that Jesus' opponents ask the question, and Jesus sometimes answers, sometimes doesn't. But who answered the question is also important. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who does most of the asking of the questions? Think about it. Yeah, it starts off, starts off, Nicodemus asking the question. We know that you are all these things. What must man do to be saved? And Jesus answers with a question. He does that a lot. And then leaves the leaves it leaves it hanging. Who answers the question matters too. That tells us what it means or what we're supposed to learn. Dialogue. Dialogue is whenever there seems to be a conversation going on in scripture. Sometimes it's short dialogue, like what we read in a popular novel. Sometimes the dialogue's a little longer such as how long o lord must i call for help but you do not listen or cry out to you violence but you do not save why do you make me look at injustice why do you tolerate wrong destruction and violence are before me there is strife and conflict abounds therefore the law is paralyzed justice never prevails the wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted habakkuk Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that dialogue partner is Habakkuk, calling out to God. But we read a little bit further and we get this. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand." They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Habakkuk 1, 5 to 11. The prophet cries out to God, asking a question and also making a statement. Feeling just a tad bit sorry. And then God says, okay, you really want to know? And then he proceeds to tell exactly how he's going to deal with the wicked. He's going to raise up those that are even more wicked and destroy them. It's crazy. I mean, God uses who he will. That's why when people people sometimes use the illustration of saying, well, look who God used in the... Saying that God used somebody as his instrument and tool, that does not mean they are holy or righteous. That just means they are a tool to be used by a holy God good example of that, if you watch the dialogue as it carries out across the minor prophets. Jonah was really put asunder, wasn't he, that Babylon was not destroyed, these, this cruel and evil, wicked people. Well then, a hundred years later, there's a prophet named Nahum. In Nahum, there's one hopeful verse. It's Nahum 1.7. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble or the day of distress, and remembers those who trust in him. The entire rest of the book is about how God is going to raise up Assyria to destroy or, or is going to destroy the Assyrians and wipe them utterly from the face of the earth. And he did as his judgment came hundred years later. That dialogue from Jonah to Nahum is a centuries-long dialogue that says God does not forget his justice will prevail. So look for dialogue. Ask who the participants are what the setting is is it a is it john 3 is it a quiet dark night is it out in public in the public square or the temple court what is the spirit of the dialogue is it an argument is it a lecture is it a discussion what's the just what's the, the tone what's the objective of the dialogue I mean, are they are they trying to say something or or, or know something Dialogues can run along for a while. Luke chapter 15, one of our best known passage where we get the parable of the prodigal son, that's actually an extended dialogue going all the way back to the end of chapter 14 where where, the, where, where Christ is looking at the behavior and the, and the accusations coming from the Pharisees and he answers by by giving them three consecutive parables that are part of an extended dialogue. What are Are there purpose and result statements in the the section? Is there a verse or a couple of verses that show the purpose or a purpose or that show a result from something? Uh, They describe the reason, the consequences. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What is that? It's a purpose statement. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you that you may increase greatly the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a purpose and result statement, what is the result of carefully obeying the law of God? You'll be in a land flowing with milk and honey. That meant a land that was extremely prosperous. Key words, that, so that, in order that, or an infinitive. Okay. I told y'all we're digging deep in sophomore English, aren't we? Look for means. When an action, a result, or a purpose is stated, look for the means that bring about that action, result, or purpose. How did God accomplish if it? If you, get, if you get a result, then look and see in your passage. How did that result come about? How can a young man stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. What's the means? What's the means to staying on the right path? Living according to the Word. It answers the question, what is the means by which something is accomplished? Identify the person or the object that accomplishes that action, result or purpose. See, who does what to get what result? Conditional clauses. Looking at conditional clauses inside of a passage will give you a lot of clues as to its meaning. They, are, they present the conditions whereby something, action, a consequence, a reality, a blessing, a result will happen. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Condition. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. If we say I'm a believer yet we live in ongoing sin. We are liars and do not live out the truth. Conditional clauses. If this condition is true, this result will be true. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. What's the condition? In Christ. Anyone who's in Christ, what's the result? You're a new creation. The conditional clause, if. You see the word if, start looking back and trying to figure out, okay, if means there's, there's, this is conditional. What is the condition? What is the result? result is usually a then. So if you see an if, then, you have what's called a conditional clause and you need to examine it pretty carefully. If my people who are called by my name Will humble themselves and pray, then, well, I, there's some conditions that have to be met. We well, use that was given to Solomon that was given to Israel, but, but who, who meets that condition today? A lot of times we'll, we'll have, you'll see that verse many times at, at really big, super, super big, patriotic, civic kind of things. I, I'm glad anytime scripture's present anywhere and used. But if my people, who who are God's people? Okay, let me go back. Let me go. If anyone is what? If anyone is in Christ, they're a new new creation. They're God's people. John chapter 1 tells us that to as many as believed, to them gave he the power to be called the children of God. That's the condition. That promise is true collectively for the church. The, the, the people of God gathered must humble themselves and pray. And turn from their wicked ways for God to bless the land. We need to remember that. Peter's really emphatic that revival begins, repentance begins in the church. Yes, sir. No, I think you're especially well. I, probably one of the best examples of that. You all remember what happened whenever, whenever the children of God disobeyed the wilderness and God sent the serpents into the camp and they, and they would be bitten and the people were dying because of the serpent bites. What did God do? What was the, what was the means, for the provision, the means for deliverance? They made the bronze serpent, they put the serpent on the staff, it was stuff what, what was the command then? Then, if, here's the means, if you will go out, go to the door of your tent and look out and look upon the serpent, you'll be healed, okay? The means, what what the result of, of being healed and being okay, of receiving the blessing of God, came because of faith. The means for expressing faith was to believe what God had said and go do. Now what happened about 100, 150 years later? They had taken that serpent and they turned it into an idol. And they were worshiping the bronze serpent on the staff. And they had to go into the town and they had to destroy the serpent and and knock it down. Why? Because people had mistaken the means that God used one time for for the result, for the for the after effect. So we need to remember, then I, I think, I don't know how many times, have you heard people say, I need to put out a fleece? Talking about Gideon. What was the means? What was the means that he used to, to know that he, what he'd heard from God was true? Well, I mean, he did, he did a sheep's fleece and sometimes it was wet and sometimes it was dry and it was a big thing. Okay, I understand. I, more times than I can count, I have prayed to God and said, God, this is going to be my fleece. This is how I'll know if you'll do this or if you'll do this or if you'll let somebody say this or say that. That is not an expression of faith. We say it as if it's an expression of faith. That was an expression of, of doubt and of a weak faith. Gideon should not have had... I mean, Gideon knew God was talking to him. He was just like, God, are you sure? Are you really, really, really sure, God? And if you watch, I mean, in Scripture, we, we, we laugh a little bit. We are just like that. I mean, and, and it, it comforts me to some degree to know in my frailty that I'm still somebody God will use because He used Moses. He used, he used people that had frail face that did struggle. But we need to make sure, we. you're right, we need to look at what was the means and, and what was the means accomplishing and then how does God accomplish that? And, and it is, by faith, that's why in John chapter 3, we talk about the serpent, Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up and he will draw all men to himself. The, the, the object of our faith, the means of salvation is Christ being lifted up. And, uh, and that's, that's the, that's, that comes from giving that principalizing bridge of we must lift up what God has provided in order to be able to show faith. And that, 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 that means wrestling sometimes with the means and not just saying, oh yeah, all we have to do is X, because that, that can lead very quickly to idolatry. And when, you, when you're looking at it, that's a, well, you're saying that, when you look at a means statement, the, the power is not in the means, the power is in the result. The, the, what happens if we are faithful Then this? The then statement is where the, the weight is at. The means shows us how how God has accomplished, and how God will accomplish, how God will provide. Another thing to look for in paragraphs: look for for the actions and roles of people, and the actions and roles of God. So, I especially when you're looking at uh, at narrative passages that are describing events, look and see. What actions did, and roles did people play? What actions and roles did God play? Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children walk in the love of Christ, just as Christ loved us and gave, up, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What are the actions of God in this passage? God loved us. Yeah, Christ and he gave himself up for us and we are told to imitate what? Our role, our role is to be children, to be followers, to walk in the ways of love just as Christ has demonstrated that. So God's action in and through Christ was to show show love as sacrificial love. Our command, the action that we're called to take, is what? To follow Christ's example and share or show sacrificial love to others. That's that's why man, we go a little bit when we go a little bit before that, Ephesians when it's talking about roles in family, that, that famous verse in five twenty-two, where the scripture says uh, therefore, because of all these things that have just passed, what, wives? Come on, ladies, you know, it's the verse that you hate hearing misquoted. Okay, that's all well and good. Now, that's the role of a wife is to, is to line up under, we discuss a little bit of authority and all those kind of things. What is the role of the husband in that passage? We don't, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it because let's talk about the really specific. What is the role of the husband? How? Does Christ love the church? What did, what did we just, I mean, talk about context, we just have to back up about 20 verses. How did Christ show love for the church? Okay. Hmm. Temple, 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 buddy. And it's actually he said, You will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. What did that what what are we talking about when we say that then? Okay, roles and actions. In all seriousness. Whose role has harder to live up to actions? Whose role has harder to live up to actions? I I look at me all the time, and they'll say, you need to tell my wife. I mean, I've I've said in counseling, it's been years past. Pastor, you need to tell my wife. The Bible says she's supposed to listen to what I say. I say, okay. Provided, can you tell me what it says you're supposed to do? Tell her what to do. No, that's not what it says. It says that you are to love her as Christ loved the church. And then we back up to this passage at the front. I said, what did he do? I say, so on the, on the spectrum and scale, how does helping her clean the toilet stack up compared to what Christ did in washing the disciples' feet as a little thing and then it's dying for a big thing? That, that spectrum, look and ask the question, what are roles and actions? What are we told to do in our role? What's the relationship between God and the action or role and the role of people? Okay, look for emotional terms. Make sure to note or highlight words in the text that convey feelings and emotion. Let's Try this one. You kind of, in your mind, kind of highlight or mark out the words that show you what the emotion of this passage is. I plead with you, my brothers and sisters, become like me. For I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. What what words in that in that little section, what words convey emotion? Yeah, I plead with you. What is that? That's that's a that's a, an urgent kind of word. Brothers and sisters. Family. People I love. You did me no wrong. What does that say? That's saying, man, you were, you're good to me. It was because of an illness. I don't care what century you lived in. Illness, sickness, disease. Those are emotional. Those, those conjure up deep emotions emotions even from experiences past and he said even though my illness was a we don't know what Paul's particular illness was but somehow he was dependent and his illness was a burden to his brothers and sisters as they cared for him and took care of him but they did not treat him with contempt or scorn or act like it was hard or work at all if you were going to try to describe the emotional term or the basic emotion and tone of this passage, what, what tone would you give it? Yeah, It's pleading, but what does that mean? It's, it's desperate. It's desperate for them to, to, to understand, but desperate for what? That He knows that He loves them and they loved Him. Uh, I would say the overriding emotion being described there is is, is familial love, is love and, and passion, compassion for one another. A, de- a deep sense of yearning and caring. That words will have emotional overtones, they'll have relational overtones. We'll get to some in a minute where, where Paul can be harsh. Tone, tone is kind of the, the expression. of the the emotions, the, the description that tells you, okay, what does this tone have? I'm a man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, He has turned His hand against me again and again all the day long. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old. He's broken my bones. He's besieged me surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in the land like those long dead. What is the tone of that passage? I'll give you a hint. The, the book pretty much tells you the tone of the entire everything. It's lament. It's lamentation. It's, it, is, it is a woe. It's a, this is bad. And lamentations, it has a lot of that in it. Some of what it's important to realize, Scripture, you heard the expression praying Scripture and being able to learn how to, to, to use Scripture to express things. Some people say, well, I can't do that with Scripture. They don't know what I felt like. I would almost, I would just challenge anyone to choose a, a situation or a, a, a position in life that you cannot find an example in scripture of someone crying to God in lament and pain and anguish and sorrow and anger and guilt and frustration and joy and elation and all of those things scripture shows us that full range of emotion and how to communicate it and that has a bearing on the meaning of the passage it would be unusual to find in in a lament it's going to be unusual unless you get to the very end but if you're in the middle of sections like this you're not going to find necessarily words of hope or joy or those kind of things. It's, there's heaviness and sorrow and sadness to say yes God understands that pain. Then there will always be the, the turn and the reason for hope. And where we find that if you if you're really find yourself in a particular kind of season of life or, or a funk, read through Scripture until you find someone whose tone is like your tone. And then read and see where that turned, that condition response. There'll be conditional promises. There'll be hope. There'll be something in it that'll let you carry on. Now, Yes, dear, I'll do that. It sounds very sweet on the page. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Tone does that. And, it, it, and it's hard. I mean, it's sometimes, depending on the passage, getting to the meaning, when we're talking about the emotion and tone, those those are very subjective decisions. I mean, I I I would be eternally grateful if, like, God had written the Bible in color-coded print, you know, so you knew exactly when the tone was what. Sometimes you have to look at, at a pretty wide context to determine. But I'll also tell you, especially when you're, when you're reading Scripture, reading Scripture public, wrestling with it to try to get the tone right and try to, try to match as near as you, if you can tell the tone, try to ex- convey the tone in how you read. Some of the... Um, if you've never done it before, readings, like when you're in your daily devotion time, I'm guessing that most of you, when you read the Bible on your own, read it silently or just with a real low whisper and just kind of read. Uh, that, I, I, that's how I read most of the time. But occasionally, I will, I will when I'm doing my, my devotional reading. I'll read through, and I'll try reading it out loud, and I'll I'll try to read it enough to where I you know figure out how to pronounce all the words, so I can read with a little bit more flow. You may have to read multiple times, but as you do that, it'll sink in, and you'll the the in some ways the tone will the tone and emotion will begin to rise up on the page, from the pages as you as you voice it multiple times. G. Campbell Morgan, who was um, a Methodist preacher years centuries ago, before he preached, the the legend or story is that he would take his text and he would read it out loud, the front part of the week, a hundred times before he tried to begin to interpret. I will tell you, I've only done that on rare occasion. But if you'll do that, you will almost have it, by the time you get to the 90th and on, you almost have it memorized because you've heard it and you've read it over and over again. And it begins to meditate in and you begin to see. A lot of times you may say, well, how in the world am I going to see all these different connections in this big, long passage? I, I can't keep it all in my head straight. Sometimes it's simply a matter of reading out of reading it enough and out loud enough to where it begins to sink in and it, and it begins to, to, to rise to where, um, where you understand Take all those things in consideration. Identify the tone, and and those will will help you go. Now, we're going to pass out some some helps, and one of them is just the um, one of them is just this PowerPoint printed out, so you didn't have to worry about notes and whatnot. The other is the front and back. It's it's called a chapter pericope summary, and I want us to take probably maybe. Twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and try this on Philippians. I'm going to let y'all get it. And I want to walk through it with you, and then I'm going to read a passage in Philippians and let y'all work on it. And then I'll hand out to you uh, a chapter summary that I, one that I filled out about uh, about two years ago. Um, this this it's called a chapter summary or pericope summary. The the way and the time that you use this particular tool is. Uh, It's when you're ready to study a passage. Now, when you when you look at your Bible, many of you are going to have are going to have versions or translations that will have little bold print headings kind of throughout everything, where it kind of breaks it up. And you know, like John three, it'll say Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night or something like that, and then it'll have that passage. Then it'll it'll break even in the chapter and give you another section. If your version does that, what they're trying to show you is what they believe the pericopes are. But what we're going to look at today, and you, you can do this with a chapter, like you can just say, I'm going to do the chapter headings and summarize the chapter. This is a way to summarize a longer section of Scripture. I got this particular outline from a book by uh, Rick Warren called 12 Bible Study Methods. He published it way back in 1980, right after he graduated from seminary and was, and was going out. It's what he used at Saddleback back when it was just a little church plant to teach people different ways to study the Bible. I found it to be a, a, a really effective thing. One of the things I like most about it is you can use it anywhere. Um, I, I first used it with some, um, some value. I, just, I read the book and used different parts of it my pastor at Chelsea, and we were going to the Philippines. The plane ride to the Philippines, counting layovers, ends up being about 30 hours, or it was for us. That is a long time to be on a plane or in an airport. And I was grateful because when we went over, the boys were young enough, they slept most of the time. And some of you are probably people that can sleep on an airplane. I can doze a little bit on an airplane, I was not built to sleep in those little bee seats. And we never had the good enough seats that I was able to recline them back and really sleep. So I'd be awake in the middle of the night and you turn on your light and, you know, they, they've got it back then. They, had a, they didn't have the, the multiverse of movies you could just call up. It was like one or two movies and you had to pick the right earpieces for the thing. Anyway, it didn't work well. So I figured out I could take out and with just my Bible... Especially, I had a, had a good study about it at the time, but just a Bible and a pen and paper, and you can spend time on a chapter or passage and really begin to break it down and get to it. The, the way this works, you pick your passage, and then the first step is to write a caption, to read it enough times that you can give it a title. Now, when I give this out as an assignment, my, my restriction is the title has to be seven words or less. So in seven words or less, give, give a title to it. If you were going to put a headline, what would it be? Then summarize the contents. That can be a, a summary, a paraphrase, an outline, depending on what it is, listing major points. <laughs> but you've got a maximum of 100 words to do that. Then look and name if there are people in this passage. Name the people, the most important people that are in the passage. Just a clue, if Jesus is mentioned in the passage, he's one of the most important people in the passage. Uh, God may be, it may be Paul, it may be somebody else. See if there's a choice verse. A verse that for you summarizes what the whole passage is about. Look for crucial word or crucial words. This is where if words are repeated often... I just tell you, like in Ephesians chapter 1, when in Christ is mentioned 14 times in 15 verses, that's a key word. Um, Look at challenges. Sometimes you'll see stuff and you'll think, that's tough. I don't understand that. Or that doesn't make sense. Or that seems hard. You don't have to always answer the challenges, but sometimes it's good to write down, this is what gives me a hard time in this passage. This is what I have a hard time applying or understanding or knowing. Cross-references. If you have a Bible that does cross-referencing, has the little sections in the middle or at the bottom, that's a help. You can get a a treasure of Scripture knowledge. is a a big cross-referencing Bible or, or, or tool. But a lot of times, if you'll just think about it, when you read a passage and you read a, a crucial verse or a section, other verses will come to mind. The more you study the Bible, the more you'll, you'll discover you're reading and you think, you know what, that makes me think of. Sometimes the passage itself will tell you that. Whatever the Bible says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, what should, what should you cross-reference then? Yeah, I mean, that the verses will pop in your head. You'll pop over and they out numbers. And so, I mean, give yourself some time to meditate on it and you'll, you can do cross-referencing on your own. Ask the question, where is Christ seen? I believe that all of Scripture is to tell us something about Christ, either about His coming or about what He's done or about how He's going to come again. Ask the question, what can I learn about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God the Father from this passage? The Bible is to, here to teach us about God. His love for us. So, how, what do I learn about God in this passage? The central lesson what did this passage, what did God want this, why did God want this passage in the Bible? It's in the Bible. Why did God want this in the Bible? Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's hard. If you've ever read through Judges, I, Susie was reading through Judges as part of her devotional audition, but she said, Judges is such, she said. It always just leaves me. She said, "Why did he put the thing about Jephthah and his daughter in there? What is the what's the reason?" And I'll be honest with y'all, I, I didn't have an answer for her. I don't have an answer for you. Sometimes I look at things and think that's hard, and I have a hard time discerning exactly why. I, I've gotten closer across the years, but I, I, I think it's there to show us. The foolishness of rash, of, of rash vows, of, of just impetus things, but I don't know if that's the why. I'm, I'm going to ask God that. when I probably won't. I won't care then, but, but I tell myself that's what I'm going to do. And then finally, the conclusion is, how do these truths apply to me or my church? And I want to challenge you to try to do that in 140 characters less. So the length of a tweet or a text, what, 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 why do, what does this tell us to do? That's the breaking down. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. You so take this and I'll leave the extras with Lee so if you want a blank one to take home later you can get another one from Lee or you can run off copies or what have you. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians. However you Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians Chapter 1, or chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to look at one of my favorite pericopes in Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, make up a section of this letter. I'm using the Christian Standard translation and I'm going to read it to you, and then I want you to use your Bible. You can get in groups of, if you want to get in groups of two, three, four, whatever, or if you want to do it by yourself, that's fine. And then I'm going, to, I'm going to go through and give you probably about 20 minutes or so to work, and then we'll pass out and I'll go through what, what my pericope study and summary was for this passage. I will tell you, when you before we get started, as you go... These kind of have a little bit of order to them, and it's best to wait on the conclusion until you've kind of done all you can do. But the rest of them, you may jump around. You may do the summary. You may do a little bit before you do the caption. I've tried to, like, do my caption first. I almost always have to get at least halfway through before I can go back and write, or else I'm erasing and marking through and all that. So don't get stuck. If you start on one of these and you think, you know, this doesn't really apply... Don't don't worry about skipping on and going and doing the next step. You want to do all ten steps eventually, but you don't have to do them in order necessarily. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. May God add his blessing, the reading of his word. Okay, read through it some more. Ask all the questions from last week and this week. Go through that little summary and see if you can break down and summarize that pericope using the 10 C's. I'm going to look at what y'all have and then look at the Section I gave you, I did I did this about probably about two three years ago in the spring. I have a long history with Philippians. It is uh, it's one of only two books I've ever memorized all the way through to to work on. It you a real challenge, it's uh, I don't know if I could do it anymore or not, but but taking some of the shorter books or some of them out something like that. Like I said, reading through it, reading through it, working on it until you memorize it in whatever your favorite translation is. That, that does a lot to help you do this kind of a Bible study and to, and to kind of keep rolling with them. One of the things I learned many, many years ago, whatever, whatever you want to call it, a, a, a quiet time, a daily devotion, personal worship time, you name, every believer needs to get away with the Lord for a brief time of Bible reading, meditation, prayer, every day, just spending some time with the Lord. Sometimes schedules get hectic and busy and crazy. Young mothers with newborns, and th- you, snatching 10 minutes may feel like the best you can do. Some of you, as you have more time, you, your daily devotion may last 30 minutes, an hour or more. But that is a time of devotion. That's, that is devotional reading. Praying Scripture back to the Lord, going. But at least, if you have the time, by all means, expand and do this kind of study. But I also learned it's good to set aside about 45 minutes to maybe a couple of hours, just depending on kind of how long your personality can focus, to study the Bible. Now that's different than this devotional reading of the Bible. Studying the Bible is doing some of the stuff we're talking about. It's it's going back and breaking it down. It's good to pick a, a passage or a book or, or something. Just decide what am I going to study this year on my own? And then set aside the time you have. We've all got about 100 hours in a week that we're awake. You know what all has to go into that. But I would say give at least 45 minutes to a couple of hours a week to trying to practice some of these things we're learning. Because these are all skills and they take practice. You're not an expert the first time you do it. You're not an expert the hundredth time you do it. It's a skill that you keep building. But it, but it takes some practice. And then regularly, maybe once a quarter, twice a year or something like that, try to, try to retreat. We see in Scripture a lot of times where Jesus would go away for extended times of prayer and study. Prayer, study, and fasting. You can't do that every day of your life. But you can set some times and say, you know what? I need a time to be able to get away. And on that, but especially if you pick a, a shorter book or a, or a section of a book, you can have a lot of devotion and you can really study a passage for, for a day or, or two or three days if you have the time to just say, I want to really give that at, at least once. I've, I've found in my life, a lot of times the holidays, whenever they're like, when the boys were out of school, we had kind of longer breaks and good gaps picking at least portions of those and getting away somewhere. So you'll laugh at me, but if you've ever been in the Philippines, there were a lot of, We, the neighborhood we lived in, there were several Chinese cemeteries. And a Chinese cemetery, at least in Asia, they were pretty nice. They had like a big oh, uh, canopy-covered uh, um I know there's a word for them, those round circle things with roofs on them that everybody goes to where they sing in 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 the sound of music. For, you know, Gazebo, thank you very much. That's the word I was looking for. They've got all these stone gazebos with benches that are really nice. So and during the week, no one was there. So I'd I'd go away a lot of times in the mornings and spend several hours. It was cool and it was quiet. And you could get away. Find a place near you that, that works that way. But I want to go through for this passage. The, the caption I ended up going was was the value of knowing Jesus. The value of knowing Jesus. And then when I summarized, for me, I'm a preacher, so i summarize it like I'd preach points or something, but there was the first, there's the warning in verses 1 through 3, the warning about legalizers. Part of what the church at Philippi was facing were, were people that were coming in saying that to be righteous, to be holy, to be a new creature, you've got to follow these rules that we're going to give you, and that's what will make you righteous. And Paul said no, and he was pretty his tone was pretty harsh in verses one through three, wasn't it? I mean, look at that. Once he, once he talks to them in verse one about being brothers and sisters, and he rejoices in the Lord with them, and it's not a burden for him to write because he wants to safeguard him, he wants to protect him. And then two and three, watch out for dogs. And that was that was an insult. The evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh, talking about those who demanded circumcision. Uh, for we're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh or in what we're able to do. So first was a stern warning about legalizing. Then there's this renunciation of self-righteousness. And he does that by, by, by basically taunting and saying, if you think you have any reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have you beat. And then he runs down the list. He said, if you want to talk about your pedigree, I don't care what your great idea did, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was, I, my pedigree is flawless. If you want to talk about position, I'm a Pharisee. I've made it to the top of the heap as a young man. You want to talk about passion? I persecuted the church and dragged people to jail and watched them stoned. If you want to talk about performance when it comes to the law, I'm blameless. Nobody can find a rule I broke. So he ran down the list and he said of self-righteousness when he gets down to the end of his list, this is verse 6. He says in 7, but everything that was gained I've considered to be lost because of Christ. All this stuff I had my confidence, all my trophies, all my certificates, all that, I just tossed it. Then he talks about how you can relish the relationship we have in Christ. And he begins in verse 8. And that's, I'll tell you, I'll go ahead and tell you I, that's the choice verse. I always go between verse 8 and verse 10 in this passage on which one I think is the, the choice. But Then he says, Moreover, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung. And I'll be honest, the word that's used there, the the weight, think of the worst word that you can think of for human feces, and that was what he was using, that that shock, that value of just saying, it's all worthless. And uh, then he goes in, that he wants to have gained Christ and be found in him having a righteousness that's not of his own, but that comes from the law. He relished that relationship. And then in verse 10, he talked about realizing the goal of discipleship. And I say verse 10 is another good option, I think, for choice verse. When he says, my goal, many translators say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, and assuming I will somehow reach resurrection from among the dead. When I look at uh, the chief people, besides Christ being, being talked about in there, you've got the legalizers, you've got Paul, and then you have the disciples that are there in Philippi. Uh, I think flesh and understanding what he meant by the flesh, meaning the, the works of the flesh, the, the things that we can do in our own abilities. And then knowing Christ. What does it mean to say you know Christ? It's more than just a head knowledge. It is, a, it is a, an intimate knowledge of Christ. Um, the challenges. For me, for me figuring out what he means by the fellowship of his sufferings and assuming I may somehow reach the resurrection of the dead. Instead of the knowing. The I struggle exactly. Why does, he, why, why does he frame it that way? Um, Cross references for me. John 17. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Then I also looked at, uh, for me, Romans chapter 10, verses 4 to 10, um, where the Scripture says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that comes by faith speaks to this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary it says, what does it say? It says the message is near me, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God has raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. But with the mouth, one confesses resulting in salvation. In First Peter 4 Instead, rejoice that you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with the great joy at the revelation of His glory. I Christ is seen as our righteousness and worth the loss of everything else in our lives in this passage. I think that's where we see Christ. For me, the central lesson was that true righteousness is only found in an intimate relationship with Christ. And then finally for me, and I, this was in February that I did this, and my conclusion was that I would spend at least five minutes each morning between then and Easter meditating on these verses about Jesus, and especially on verse 8 and verse 10. I did that as I, as I headed through and, and prepared for the Easter season, and Resurrection Sunday. Those were my, what were some, what were some of y'all, your key points, your key words, your challenges? What, what, were, what were your captions? What were your titles for this passage? What did y'all come up with? Knowing Christ is everything. What did y'all hit for the caption? No confidence in the flesh. Yeah, it hits it. How about y'all? They didn't quite get to the caption. That's all right. Yeah, but I've told them, man, sometimes that's the hardest one to get. How about, how'd y'all, how'd y'all summarize? Kind of how'd y'all break it down? I say I, I went one to three, and then four to seven, eight to nine, and then ten to eleven. But how how did y'all kind of break down the the flow? I'll do. When you when you see that flow go in, you realize he's starting. And what his, what's his reason for writing this, particularly? What was the occasion for him talking to the, the Philippian church about this passage? Yeah, yeah, the league's yeah that you're not really right yet. You're not really okay. There's more, 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 more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's that the struggle Yeah, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. Yeah. Yeah. That, one of the big struggles, legalism is when you let ritual become the relationship. Now, in other places, he's going to address the fact there's nothing wrong with ritual. In fact, some rich, some ritual or some patterns or habits or however you want to describe it are good as long as we don't do, as long as we remember what we talked about earlier, there are means. Rituals are a means, but what's the end? The end is righteousness in Christ. And if you mistake the means for the end, you get legalism. And uh, and Paul hit that, and then, and then he addressed self-righteousness. Some people will say, yeah, well, I'm okay because, and then you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And what amazes me is Paul was addressing pedigree and what's your family background, and he was addressing, you know, what, what positions do you hold, what titles do you have, what, you know, what's your passion, how excited do you get, how hard do you work and all that, what's your performance, you know, what kind of results do you get. Those are all things that people today use to try to justify how they're going to be okay. Well, you know, my grandpa was whatever. Or, yeah, but you know, I'm a Sunday school teacher or I'm a preacher or I'm a whatever. you know what? I've got passion, man. You ought to hear it. When we sing, you can just feel this. I mean, all those things that we use, there's nothing wrong with them just in and of themselves unless we try to put them in the place in our life that only Christ can fill. So he he hammered hard on on how that relationship was everything, was knowing Christ. And it was worth whatever you lost was nothing compared to this. So that's the hit. But I want to I want to encourage you, use if it if it helps, it is useful. Use that it's a it is a good little tool for breaking down a passage. I will tell you but my personal experience to like fill it out and feel like I've kind of done it, it usually takes me anywhere from at least a half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes as much as an hour and a half, sometimes a couple of days of doing it, going back and looking and seeing, do I think it's right? We'll talk about tools later on. There's some simple tools you can get that make this even easier and better to do. But this is just a good way to say, am I breaking down? the passage, to discover what it means. And when you get to that end of having to summarize why is this in the Bible and what does it mean for me or for my church, that's where you really get to the heart of what what Bible study is all about, of being not only a hearer of the Word, but a doer and learn how to do that. Okay, Lee, that's all I got tonight.